You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Right, friends, I'm excited to introduce our guest for today. We've got the one and only Cole Arthur Riley, uh, who is a writer, uh, but she's also the creator of Black Liturgies, uh, a contemplative writing project centering Black dignity, healing, and liberation. Cole also currently serves as a spiritual teacher in residence with Cornell University's Office of Spirituality and Meaning Making, and her debut book is This Here Flesh spirituality liberation and the stories that make us and so cole we're just so uh grateful to have you here on inverse podcast welcome thank you glad to be here thanks for inviting me into your space oh th this is a joy for us um cole congratulations uh on um the book what a incredible offering to the world and that it has been recognized um as such in terms of becoming a new york times bestseller as well um that's wonderful we wanted to give you an opportunity um before um we explore with you we, we love to explore people's own biography as theology in the context of um, the Christian sacred text. But before we do that, we'd love to give you an opportunity to talk about the book. Um, for those who uh, haven't picked it up yet, um, uh, would you invite us into where this came from, this project and um, its importance for you? Sure. Um, so this here, Flush, it's a, um, a mix between Christian contemplation on things like dignity, lament, rage, rest, these kind of like big topic concepts. Um, but I ground the book in the stories, the intergenerational story of myself, my father and my grandma. So um, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a lot of storytelling, a bit of myth, um, a bit of magic. Uh, and, you know, there's some Bible in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Uh, I know that um, I know in our inverse community, there are lots of folks who um, have been appreciative of Black liturgies on Instagram, as well as um, just uh, your work and uh, are excited. I've already heard uh, multiple people in our community that have read the book already that are through it and have just been appreciative of it. And so um, we just are grateful for your witness and the work that you're doing. Uh, I would love, one of the things that we love to do when we kind of set the stage for our podcast is for you to kind of ground um, our conversation with a biblical text. Is there a passage that you've chosen that you can read for us right now? Yes. Um, this is, it's from Ezra 3, mm. the, the rebuilding of the temple. And I'm starting at verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, King of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, God is good. 
God's love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Thank you. We often ask, um, when do you first remember encountering the scriptures? Um, this is permission to um, do what you've done so well uh, in your book, uh, tell stories in ways that open up um, people to uh, uh, your context and their own. So uh, are there particular memories that come to mind when you think of encounters with scriptures? Yes. Um, so I, I wasn't raised in a overtly religious home, certainly not one where we read the Bible, but um, when I was like 10-ish, uh, 10 to 11, we had this very strange season where my family began to go to church with my great aunt, um, who was in a season of grieving. She had just lost her husband. And so we were going, accompanying her um, so that she wouldn't have to go alone. And that was the first time I really encountered the Bible. And that yeah, was terrifying. It was a Good Friday service. So that's about as scary as it gets for a 10-year-old worrying sure. about uh, the Bible for the first time. And it was this, you know, a very small, all-white um, Baptist church, and the like. Pastor was just sweating, raving, like, like screaming. You know, with all the theatrics that sometimes come out of Good Friday services, for better or worse. But um, I would say for ten-year-old Cole, it was for worse because I was just completely terrified and like couldn't really. Um, take the Bible very seriously after that. I just thought, um, yeah, why does this guy keep asking me to die? Why does this guy keep asking me to die for God? You know, will you give your life? He kept asking, will you give your life for God today? This is what the Bible says. Um, my sister and I were like, listen, like we're, we're too young to die. <laughs> what is happening? Um, so anyways, I like really kind of took well, yeah, I just was very skeptical of the church and the Bible and really anything to do with it for uh, a while until like late high school and into college when I started to re-engage, you know, in a more open-minded way. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and it kind of hits the point like sometimes we don't recognize, you know, some of the things that people become accustomed to mm -hmm. uh, when you have fresh ears, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes strangeness of it, as well as um, some of the ugliness of it, right? Um, kind of comes out. Yeah, that's, that's good. Um, so I'm interested in thinking as you think about, um, and it, you kind of mentioned two different encounters. Uh, first, this you know, your encounter with this Baptist church and then something later um, engaging it. I'm curious for both, like, did you encounter 
how how was the experience and encounter with the Bible itself? Would you describe it as liberating, as oppressive, as something else? Um, uh, in, in these different moments, um, as you were kind of journeying and getting to know, you know, to grow in your faith. Yeah, you know, I think when I was little, uh, I wouldn't have said this then, but in hindsight, I think it was a kind of oppression, maybe a kind of, um, yeah, a kind of biblical explanation that made me think that I needed to sacrifice my body and. I talk about this in my book some that, you know, it felt like the church was more interested in uh, the suffering of my body than in protecting it. Mm. Um, and I, I, I've just f- continued to find that problematic. But I would say now I, I don't really experience the Bible as, or I'll say I only experience it as oppressive in as much as I believe the Bible is prescriptive. And I, I personally don't tend to think that way. Um, it's fine if you do that. I'm not threatened by that. But um, yeah, I, I don't think of it like that. And so I don't really find it oppressive. I think it can certainly be a tool um, for oppression. In a similar way, I guess it can be a tool for liberation. But I think more than both of those things, I, I, I've, I at least later on in like college, I began to encounter it as kind of a beauty, the the beauty of the hmm. the stories in it, um, and some of the language I found very, yeah, moving. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the the closest language I would have for it is 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 beautiful, but of course, beautiful things can be made to do ugly. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, your your attentiveness. Um, in your writing and the the place of beauty, um, the the way that um, your writing brings to mind both Martin Led sometimes, uh, and then Octavia Butler, and then Lawrence Freeman, and then um, and Alice Walker. Um, uh, there there is a keen sense that um, there y- you have taken uh, time and been very conscientious about. Um, the way that you see things. We're fascinated to hear, um, uh, and if I can use terms that alienate some and then explain it, but like what hermeneutics would you offer out of your own experience um, in in reading texts in ways that do um, uh, foster and cultivate beauty? Um, What uh, particular lens um, do you bring out of your experience that might be gifted to others as they approach sacred texts um, to encounter it in ways that um, are freeing? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I think going back to college, so I was experiencing so much newness. I'm a first-generation college student, and mm. Um, I was taking all of these English courses, even though that wasn't my major initially. But anyways, I was taking all of these English courses um, and encountering 
a lot of Black literature in a way that I never had before. I hadn't, I hadn't read Toni Morrison until college. I hadn't read Alice Walker. I'm like, name someone. I guarantee I had not touched them until college or later, sadly. Um, so I was experiencing, yeah, the Black literary tradition for the first time and just experiencing this kind of awakening in that way. And simultaneously, I'd been telling this friend, um, I was like, I think I might be into this Christian thing, you know, I, I might be ready to go here. And he was like, well, I think Christians go to church, um, Cole. And so he was also interested and we just literally chose like so randomly, would not recommend. We just went to the church in the middle of campus that looked like a church with the with big red doors and walked in and kind of made a bit of a home there. Um, and that was the first place I was being taught anything about the Bible, taught anything about God intentionally, um, as opposed to like self-learning. I had other voices speaking into me. And I think because my college experience was so, um, so new altogether and such this like, whirlwind to lose to use cliche language it was like such a whirlwind that I couldn't really distinguish these different compartments within my college experience so I've said that I think my kind of um, biblical awakening happened simultaneously with like my literary awakening in terms mm. of encountering so like I couldn't really see what I like I was reading Toni Morrison in the classroom and I couldn't separate that from you know reading Isaiah on Sunday in a pew like it was very all one to me um, and so in that way I think I've come to maybe, I've already even said this once, like I've come to maybe have this like emphasis on the story of the Bible, the, the, the Christian story and this kind of interplay between different stories than anything else. I know that might, I don't, I don't know if that will like, you know, frighten some people. Well, I, I don't really care, um, but I think it, I think it, I think it, I think it might because sometimes I think story is so demeaned, like the uh -huh. language of story is so demeaned yeah. that it, it can come across as oh you don't take this very seriously, and you're just concerned with the story of it. But as me, I think you know stories are very um, meaningful, or I think a mm. core value in my life, and so you know I. I it's very high praise for me to encounter something through that lens and find beauty and importance through that lens. Um, yeah. And that certainly comes through in terms of how you honor the stories of e even family, like um, uh, the, the importance of um, story as a, as a transformative force Thank in you. your lives. Cole, you mentioned something that um, I'd like to um, kind of, uh, given where you you are now, you, you said that you wouldn't recommend that's how to find a church um, is just go to the building at the centre that looks like a church. Well, if if somebody was to ask you now, so um, what what would you recommend now in terms of finding a church? Like, what, what are the um, uh, uh, practices or people like? You answer that question any way you want, but if somebody came to you now and said, "How do I find a church?" What what kind of advice? Yeah. Oh man, a lot of things come to mind. Um, the, I mean, the like broad thing that came to mind was like, 
you know, where do you feel safe? But I mm. think that's maybe not the best answer because I think we don't always know when we're safe and when we're not, you know, even when our bodies are trying to communicate those things to us. So I feel like that's maybe a like unfair, <laughs> an unfair metric to give. I guess you could ask yourself, you know, um, what, uh, what, what, when have I already felt near to the spiritual or like near to the divine? And is that, is there some kind of bridge there with the church that you would be attending? Um, like, for example, if I found like, a I found a lot of nearness to my own selfhood, to the world, to these big questions of what does it mean to be human? You know, what does it mean to grieve? What does it mean to love these big spiritual questions? Like if I've, you know, felt nearest to those questions when I'm reading, then maybe I should look for a church, you know, with some kind of like literary intention or some kind of connection or group or something like that. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. Um, I'll tell you what I, I would say not to do <laughs> in typical millennial fashion I'll like tell you how not to choose is like or what I avoid in a spiritual space what I avoid in a church is is a church where I feel like my belonging um is kind of predicated on like what doctrine or creed I'm able to muster belief in mm -hmm. like yeah. um <laughs> I, I think that that just led me to places of just like complete fraudulence in my own mm. spiritual life because I think so many of us are so desperate for belonging it's really easy to sacrifice what we actually think what we actually believe in pursuit of that or to keep that and I'm really sympathetic to that in a lot of pe people um and in a lot of places so I would say hopefully well for me I would look for a place where I'm able to kind of flex or I'm able to be curious um, maybe spaces like this of where there's room for mystery, where, you know, mm. people aren't going to be threatened if you reach a different conclusion as them. Mm. Um, I think that's a place of spiritual liberation. That's beautiful. Yeah, that, that's really good. So, um, yeah, that's really beautiful. And you even used the word beautiful earlier as you were talking about story. Um, in fact, I was just thinking as you were talking, as you were talking about, you know, the importance of story in the within scripture, um, there's a book and um was it the eclipse of the biblical narrative? It's like, was it Hans Fry or something, whatever? It's just like whatever. But but the argument was basically um that the impact of the enlightenment basically has stripped the significance of the story, right? That mm -hmm. we were so story oriented when we came to the text and then enlightenment changed literally into propositional truths and all these kind of things yeah. that kind of killed literally the story of the text. Um, and so, um, so if someone is threatened, it's maybe because, and maybe that's precisely why you warn people away from, right? There's churches that are all, we have to co-sign all the propositional, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. doctrines and dot all the I's and cross all the T's um, because in some ways they've lost the imagination for story, right? Yes. Um, in that kind of uh, focus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I would love for you to uh, guide us through this passage in Ezra that you've chosen um, in such ways that kind of help us uh, enter into this kind of literary kind of beauty and story um, uh, and narrative and interplay and 
give space for us to be flexible and kind of lean into it. Can you uh, 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 guide us into this text together? Yes, I'm, I'm glad that you framed it that way because um, I was already starting to sweat. I'm like, I don't know if I'm the person to, to guide us into the Bible, but when you frame it that way, I'm like, oh, story-based guiding. Like, I feel like I can do that. I, I love, um, I mean, I, I know exactly where I was sitting the day that I like first read this passage. I wow. like, I know what season it was. I can't remember what I was wearing. And I usually remember, but I, it was, it's, it was really, um, yeah, it's really remained in me because I think it's so subtle. So, like the story is so subtle that you, like, if you blink, you miss it. Almost, you, mm -hmm. If you blink, you miss the beauty of it. And I, I think I had, like, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'd read Ezra, not saying everyone should have read Ezra, but I, I was in collegiate ministry. I was like leading Bible studies at, at that point. So I'm sure I'd read Ezra in this passage in particular and just kind of missed it. But for whatever reason, this day was the first day I really encountered it. And, um, you know, it's this rebuilding of the temple and you have this kind of intergenerational subtle moment where, you know, some people earlier, I think it says people in their 20s, as young as their 20s, were helping like rebuild this, this temple, lay the foundations um, fresh out of captivity. So you, you had um, some people, the younger people, kind of celebrating in this shout of joy, this excitement, this like um, really like triumphant, joyful moment. And then I think you have this older generation who I feel like can often go unnoticed their emotional experience of a moment. Anyways, you have this older generation who just weeps. They see it and, and they're not shouting for joy, they're weeping. Um, and I, I really appreciate that it says like the sounds of joy and the sounds of weeping get kind of uh, wrapped up in each other and like you can't yeah. distinguish them. I think that's, it's a such, it's a beautiful portrait of lament and it's a beautiful portrait of joy, like complicated intergenerational. And it actually makes me think of this. Um, I, I, I hadn't thought of this until today, but it, it makes me think of this moment in Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved. Um, the clearing, which I, I like to talk a lot about the clearing. Mm. Many people do from, from that novel. If you're not familiar, it's this place of refuge for um, enslaved Black people. And the matriarch is, is giving this, is preparing to give this sermon. And there's this moment, I'll, I'll take you to the, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll do some storytelling. There's this moment and um, the, all the people are waiting at the perimeter of the clearing. And baby Suggs, the matriarch, says, you know, uh, children come to the center. And she says, like, let your let your moms hear you, let your moms hear you laugh. And and the kids are laugh. And then she calls the men to the center and she says, Men, let your uh let 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 the woman uh see you dance. And the men start dancing. And then she calls the woman to the center and she says, Women cry for the living and the dead just cry and like the women let loose and they then she calls them all to the center and she says that you know they get kind of tangled up in each other and then till the point where the men are crying and the children are laughing and you know the 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 
the women are dancing and it's like this intergenerational emotional embodied thing and they collapse in the clearing and they eventually hear baby silks get this gives this beautiful sermon but anyways this passage in a like strange way makes me think about the clearing that intergenerational um emotional account of that there is so much present in them and almost there was a need for kind of a, a harbor to actually display what you know what traumas what terrors had been trapped in them um as well as what like joys what what triumphs were trapped in them um so yeah anyways i i don't want to go on too much because i want to hear it you both have to say about this passage and if you've thought um, meaningfully about it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I find it beautiful. Yeah. So tender, thank you. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Um, I've, I think I've, I, I have one sermon, not that I preached, but I heard, um, you know, um, and, I, and then it was a, such a long time ago. So I'm, as you're reading it, it just kind of vaguely is like coming back to me just a little bit. Um, but it was, um, the preacher was kind of entering into this intermix of, um, I think if I remember right, it was like talking about how like black elders and just their remembering of what used to be in the black community. Mm. Um, and then uh, for the young generations, you know, the hope for what's possible moving forward. Um, and then how there's a celebration and kind of lament kind of happening in the midst of that um, and what that means. I don't know. That's all I kind of remember, but, um, mm. but yeah, that's a, um, I really appreciate how you kind of brought it together. And I think what's beautiful in the text that jumps out to me in 11 is the, for he is good, his loyal love towards Israel is forever, right? That kind of refrain that we hear in so many different parts of the Bible um, to God's faithfulness enduring love, um, them accounting in the midst of all that they've been through, making it surviving, right? That they're still mm -hmm. there through exile and struggle. Um, and that there's this intergenerational moment reflecting um, and thinking about God's goodness in the midst of that. Um, yeah, that, that to me really hits, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cole, I, I love that um, you brought forward the witness of Tony Morris. And to um, uh, I, I know you said that for some people it might be uh, scary. I think for so many people it's freeing. I think um, uh, um, you, you don't have to be part of the tapestry, which is neurodiversity, um, uh, where I find myself uh, to know that how how the Bible is approached in lots of different spaces um, isn't natural nor intuitive uh, nor affirming of how so many of us um, approach texts. Um, your focus on story um, gives voice to so many of us who um, uh, enter the world imaginatively and the life of our dreams has more to say um, to um, how we approach sacred texts than does um, engineering manuals, uh, which mm -hmm. is how I hear some people talk of doctrine. Um, and uh, I hope it's not presumptuous, but I actually sent, um, I, I sent you a, a poem as you were um, speaking um, 
that I wrote after hearing, um, it's actually called On Hearing of Miss Morrison's Death. Um, and um, I think this passage, um, I'll be completely office, uh, honest, um, it's not in any way part of my formation. Uh, I can't remember sermons about, I've certainly not ever preached on the book of Ezra. Um, I, I can't remember sermons um, from uh, the book of Ezra. Um, uh, I, part of my appreciation from hearing it afresh from yourself is that I think um, so many of us have been formed in, um, and uh, for those listening who, who don't know, um, uh, uh, I'm white, I'm, I'm male, um, pale male and stale is sometimes the disclaimer we give in terms of um, uh, prioritizing the first being last and the last being first in inverse spaces and who's sharing first. And we invite those um, who uh, are in the same lo social location, such as myself, um, to lead in going last, while those who are often um, uh, placed last and overlooked, we invite them to step into um, the dignity they possess by going first and, and sharing first. Um, and so I'm, I'm quite comfortable to um, uh, listen to your reflections on this text um, because I, I honestly um, don't know if I have much to add other than reflections on what you shared, which um, may be interested for some, but is certainly... <laughs> It's certainly not how, why most people are here and, and, and want to, I think, the importance of hearing from you. Um, uh, I, I would be interested to hear, if you don't mind um, sharing, uh, what is the role of um, uh, contemplation as a practice for you when it comes to meditating upon scripture, how you feel that informs um, uh, how that dances with these texts, um, uh, yeah, any reflections on? Yeah, um, I think I had been practicing Lectio Divina for, which is like a, mm. like old sacred kind of slow reading of scripture, read it again and again and again. I had been doing that for maybe five years, um, mm. I haven't done it, uh, but when I, before I started Black Liturgies, I've maybe done it three times since I started Black Liturgies, and wow. I've only done it in leading it um, with other people, like leading retreats or things like that. Um, I have found it really beautiful. I think the more, I, I talked about there being something subtle to this passage, you know, something like unspoken in it, which I mm. think are all the best stories, you know, if you watch the Oscars, like all of the Oscar stories, there's something subtle to them. It's like just as much about what's saying as to what it's not and what's absent from dialogue. And, you know, mm. anyways, um, so I think all of the best stories are a bit subtle and Lectio Divina has a way of, of bringing you or maybe making things come alive in a different way without repetition. I now practice it with other texts as well mm. in a similar way that you would like in a classroom almost, you know, like if you've ever had to do those like 
really annoying annotated readings of um, really dense texts. I, I think I, I do have a bit of a practice of that now, not intentionally, like it's not like I'm intentionally like, let's do Lectio Divina, but with Toni Morrison. But I, um, I have trouble with my eyes. I have a number of chronic eye conditions, number of chronic health conditions that make it so I have to be really shrewd about my reading, what I read, how and when. And I sometimes can only take in like small amounts of text at once. And so I do that and I try to remember and recall and, and meditate or chew on, um, as the language goes, chew on them for a while with, you know, um, and I hope to do it again at some point with the Bible. I'm like, don't know if I'm like fully honest about why I'm, I've stopped doing it with I was going to ask you if you had a, if you had thoughts on, yeah. on just the season, what, what, if you want to hypothesize, you don't have to, but if you want to hypothesize. You know what? I think um, around like the election, around the pandemic, I think that was my first entrance into social media in a like meaningful way like i had social media before black liturgies but like not in the same way like not i i didn't follow any kind of like public figures or anything like that like i just followed my like friends and family um so it was the first time i was like really realizing how loud um yeah public rhetoric is and how much people can use the Bible to mean whatever they need it to mean. Yeah. And I think I was so exhausted by that, that it's probably created this like skepticism, this like growing like skepticism in me. And um, maybe even a distrust in some of my own in, in biblical interpretation and kind of, um, yeah, again, for better or worse, probably knowing like there are people who really believe this is telling them to behave this way or this is. Um, and so it does make you wonder, well, what, what do what do I think the Bible is saying that it absolutely isn't saying like, surely I'm not exempt from it and don't have complete like all the right answers. And so I think with that skepticism, maybe it has come a little bit more distance in terms of like those meditative practices in those seasons maybe I've been more interested in encountering them in community so mm -hmm. it's not always just my own interior li life kind of turning over a story that other people maybe that makes it easier for me to trust yeah yeah that's good it it's it's also to step back for just a moment it's fascinating for us to consider the assumptions around that as well. Um, my dad's side of the family are Catholic um, and um, uh, my mum uh, side of the family the secular Jews and she converted in her teens. Um, and the very different way that scripture, even just across those two different traditions, are considered and handled. And it's interesting that uh, to name up front that there are, there are a lot of Christians for whom um, the Bible is always a communal reality, yeah. not, not merely a personal reality. And when it is a personal reality, it is a personal reality around um, uh, prayer um, rather than around a um, uh, quiet times daily in my Bible and, and not to take away from that and how powerful that is. Um, but if people find themselves in a season where 
um, that isn't opening their heart and grounding themselves in their body and uh, bring them to a place of humility and love of uh, the most high and others, um, that it, it's okay to find practices that do feed that. Um, and I just wanted to state that up front because for, for a lot of readers that might be actually really um, freeing uh, that there's, there's um, certainly from the mouth of my Lord, there's no kind of, and I'll see you in the morning at 6am as you open up a book. Um, uh, discipleship does not require that. Um, and I think even in terms of traditions that do lift that, like I think of Jim Lawson, um, who's so dear um, to, to Drew and, and, and I, um, and his insistence um, uh, to include in Martin King's um, daily meditate on the life of Jesus in terms of um, the freedom movement and animating, um, that, that was imaginative material to be composted um, in life daily, um, not uh, facts and figures to be integrated into a system that wields a power. Mm. Um, uh, or... or um, I mean, as Desmond Tutu says, it, it's a different kind of power, isn't it? It's a force more powerful. But just to spell out for people, that might be helpful for some people. And I think, Cole, that's something that your work and witness gives permission for. Um, and uh, I want to ask, um, uh, your writings, like, explicitly out of your experience as um, a Black North American woman, and yet um, there's, <laughs> what's it like for you to realise there's people who look, like me, um, who are daily drawing from that and also the complexities of that. Um, uh, like some of us are seeking to come to your work um, uh, to do our, to support our work of freeing ourselves from white supremacy. Um, but I'm sure there's complexities of um, what that does to um, who you see your audience is as well. Would you mind speaking to that some? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. Um, first, I'll say when I said election earlier, I meant the US presidential election. And then afterwards realized there's many people tuning in. How very North American of me um, to assume <laughs> everyone. Anyways, um, but yes, it has been interesting um, to have like non-Black people encounter my work. I think, well, I'll talk about Black liturgies first. So initially, you know, I was seeing, you know, sparse, <laughs> sparse white person in like my comments or DMs or anything like that. And then for whatever reason, I don't know if it was the algorithm or what, it, like after around 10,000 followers, I like flip switched and all of a sudden, it just, I just was overwhelmed um, by how many white people were following the work. And um, I think it came with a lot of like complicated feelings, honestly. I think mm. at first kind of confusion, I didn't even think, uh, yeah, anyways, I, I didn't even know if people who look like me would want a space like Black Liturgies. Um, <laughs> So then I was like super confused to find that a bunch of white people also wanted the space. Um, but I think, you know, Toni Morrison, she talks about the the white gaze and mm. the kind of um, the weight of the white gaze on the work of, of black people. 
and this pressure I, I've had to think about a lot this pressure of like what does it mean to um to be tempted to cater to the the white men in a room the white mm. men in a virtual space to kind of like that's in me whether I mean that's in for those of us who you know we're subject even a little bit to white supremacy <laughs> like that's that's in us on some level that that tool for survival I think um Mm-hmm. And I'm sympathetic with myself about that because, you know, the white gaze, I said this recently, frankly, the white gaze pays. It pays <laughs> to have the white gaze on your work. Um, I believe that's how I got my publishing contract. And and also uh, the, the, white, the white gaze has a way of um, speaking an affirmation over your work that meets this part of you that's felt rejection and alienation prior um and i think you know you can hate white supremacy and still be honest that that is you know that that being raised as a black woman in america is i experienced a kind of childhood alienation a kind of childhood rejection that formed me to appeal to a certain person so anyways i've had to really in my writing in writing my book um especially I had to really like interrogate myself to ask like whose voice are you catering to right now like um, I've used the language of like who's in the room with you right now like like so to speak who's 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 over your shoulder right now as you're writing and scared to write this sentence or or defining this language you know so that other people um, so that white people understand it and there are times where I can be honest and say, I think the white gaze has won, has won out in my work. And I'm really proud of the moments where it hasn't, because um, I think it's really hard to resist um, those pressures. Yeah. And I'll say um, on the other side of it is like, I have found something, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think there's something mysteriously beautiful, maybe mysteriously like healing in like on a cosmic level, <laughs> maybe mm. about a white person praying words written by a black woman. Like that, mm-hmm. I feel like that has to do something to reorder the like to reorder the soul, you know, reorder the appetite of the soul. Um, mm. I I think liturgy can be in like a remarkable force, a, a remarkable experience of solidarity if approached right. Like, what does it mean to encounter a sentence and? not even understand it, you know, to, to not resonate with it at all, to, to, mm. to maybe not even understand the language, but to be committed to, to staying in the, staying in the words, staying in the phrase, staying in the liturgy, so to speak, um, even when it doesn't center you, like mm. that's a power, that's a powerful praxis mm-hmm. uh, of centering and recentering and decentering that happens in liturgy that I'm not quick to sneer at. So while the, the white gaze certainly adds stress to my work, extra labor to my work, I, I think at least in this season, like I'm willing, it's, it's, a, it's a cost I'm maybe willing to bear. Um, maybe I won't always feel this way, but right now I do. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. yeah, that's, that's good. I resonate, I appreciate that um, because I think there's so many ways in which it gets so messy in terms of audience and and who you're writing to, especially when you know you have a very wide range of folks who are reading your work and how are you going to um, continue to be authentic and genuine to 
inside who you are, what you're kind of grappling with, um, who you want to speak to, and then also knowing that you don't get to completely control who you speak to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a strange feeling to know that you don't have as much control over your audience as you would like to. Once your words leave your hand and you know are on the page, it's kind of um, has takes on a life of its own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I wonder if part of the power of what you're doing as well is that it auto, also relativizes what has been assumed to be um, white voices and rightly alienates people, um, uh, not merely from the scriptures themselves, but from ancient liturgies that people assume is um, it's been read through this white lens. Um and uh, the the disconnect that people may feel um, with your reality um, is the disconnect that it's actually there present in the scriptures as well. That if we're opening up the Psalms, um, uh, this is th- this is the chance of a people in worship whose social location is remarkably different from what most of us find ourselves in. And I think some of the power of what you're doing is. Um, Rediversifying liturgy, while I think, particularly in the English-speaking world, it's hard to underestimate how the Book of Common Prayer and um, Anglicanism's liturgies have um, uh, if. I could share biographically for for just a moment. To um, I went through a period of my life where, for two years, I um, sought to use the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and uh, I found it um, uh, helpful, but also um, this is literally the liturgy that was used by people who stole the lands of my dad's people <laughs> and um, uh, my dad's family members that were were killed in his lifetime um, uh, over the, this tension. Um, uh, this book uh, was neutral in those realities, and what it is to to name the place that liturgies have played in um, uh, every those things that come to steal, kill, and destroy <laughs> as opposed to what Jesus was on about. So I, I think that's one of the great gifts of the work that you're doing is actually um, uh, taking back other liturgies as well and allowing them to be alien to people. Mm, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for naming that. I've been trying to, um, just in the past few months, I've been trying to hunt down, I'm told or I've read that the um, Confederate armies, uh, this is US history, the Confederate armies um, had this like their own version of the Book of Common Prayer. Um, And it seems like no one's seen this thing, and I'm like, I, I want to see it. I, I want to, I want to know. But yeah, I just because I, I don't know what that would do for me, but I'm curious if it was changed or if it literally was just the Book of Common Prayer repurposed with a different, you know. Anyways, but when I think back to you know Thomas Cranmer and the time he was writing in, you know, I know his experience. I, I, small details like that yeah (laughs) yes exactly it's like I know what my ancestors were doing in the 16th century like I know it was and so it you you know I don't know Thomas Cranmer but I I don't think 
I don't think he cared about me or my blackness. So it's complicated like to find beauty in something, but I'm glad you had this recognition of like, no, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to force this. There's a lot, there's a, there's a big swing in uh, like American hipster culture right now to like love the Book of Common Prayer, um, which is just kind of interesting. <laughs> do, do you mean hipster culture generally, or you mean like Christian hipster culture? I think I mean Christian hipster culture. Right, because that would be imagine, like amazing in general hipster <laughs> culture, but randomly, yeah. I tend to equate the two, but I shouldn't. But yeah, I feel like there's this, like, the past five years, it's like the te- like everyone's Anglican and everyone loves the Book of Common Prayer. And I think to have voices that are rightfully, like, you know, suspicious, like critical, yeah. rethinking, reimagining, um, to say this isn't the only way that's it's unfair to 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 you know place this like superior hierarchy on a book that has yeah it 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 might not say enslave people but it certainly didn't say any it didn't not yes exactly didn't have liberation language in it and so yeah anyways i'm glad that you named that See, I feel like y'all are trying to get me into trouble. I'm like, but we are recording. So I'm like, watch your, what, what, but I do, I mean, these are like, uh, these are things I think way too much about and I struggle with. And some of it is, I mean, and so, so Cole, like I'm deeply, deeply shaped by um, black liberation theology, as well as the kind of radical discipleship wing of Anabaptism. Right. Okay. And so like, I, there's a part of me that like, just critique all of Western Christianity. Like, there's, there's some of me, right? That, and so like, that's that's always my first impulse. And then I have to like tone it down at least a little bit. But I, I do struggle with, not, not that people can find beauty in Anglican and Episcopalian, Episcopal church. I think wherever people find themselves and they find home and they find a liberating, loving community that deepens their faith, I, I, that's beautiful. But, but I, I guess um, I'm always surprised, and I'm maybe going to regret saying this for, on the inverse podcast right now. But I'm always surprised at how quickly you know everybody's paying more attention as soon as you say that. Like <laughs> everybody just leant in and turned the yeah. volume up. But it's like, all right, so everyone's like, oh, evangelicalism, American evangelicalism, it's so oppressive. So then the answer is. Let's go to the Anglican church, which was like literally the teacher of American evangelical, like the Anglican church, they sent missionaries down to teach the planters and masters how to propagate Christianity properly to their enslaved. You're not doing it properly. And so we're going to show you how to do it. You got to teach absolute obedience, right? And so like, I guess there's a frustration in me, not because people are, but it's almost like, do we have no historical memory at all in terms no, of we don't like through. like literally evangelicals <laughs> learned so much of that stuff from intentional propagation from the Anglican Church and the Anglican was behind so much of colonial conquest way before America even w- w- had an idea how to I mean they, America perfected it the evils of colonial conquest and slavery um, but but the Anglican Church was a global force. All right, so now I'm going to regret yeah. saying all that. I, I don't mean to demean people's traditions, um, but I do struggle maybe as a black man um, hearing people so quickly 
just celebrate it as a liberating force and not mm -hmm. acknowledging the historical pain and trauma and yeah. violence and plundering that has happened globally also. And so it's really messy, I guess. Mm -hmm. And we've got to be able to name that as well. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, the, tr the truth is no, Drew, they don't know. They don't know. <laughs> no one remembers we have amnesia. It's not even amnesia. It's, yeah. It was intentionally, it was, you know, beat out of everyone and so suppressed. People don't want to remember what the Anglican Church has done. Um, hmm. Or most churches will not matter. Yeah. And I, I wonder if um, part of the evangelical impulse to find a tradition of finally this time we've got it right is one of the things that the Holy Spirit sets us free from. Um, I, I'm impressed by people who convert to traditions uh, because they want to own the nocturnal side of it, not because mm -hmm. they want to um, parade a new form of I'm not a part of this. And Distancing, um, right. Yeah, so um, last time uh, I, I was in Belfast, um, I was interviewed by the BBC and um, they said, so um, do you identify as um, Catholic like your family or Protestant? Um, and if I had answered that question in my early 20s, I would have said neither and thought that was like spiritually mature. Um, last time I was there, I answered both and then went on to say, and not with the best of both, but the worst of both as a confession that this needs to be transformed. That, that this needs to actually be worked with. Um, and I, I think this is um, part of the, the work that you're doing in public, Cole, is, is showing us what it is to enter into um, these traditions, be conversant with them, um, allow them to um, uh, filter and be mixed and fused and um, uh, given back as, as worship and re-offered out of your own embodied experience as what it is to, to integrate um, and to speak truth rather than to regurgitate um, what is not conscious in those traditions that do support oppression. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is the work for all of us. There, there's no place to hide where um, th these powers of misogyny and white supremacy, I mean, we could go through all the intersections, um, they're not merely out there, we've been formed in them as have our traditions. Um, and I, I appreciate your work so much because um, you're working with them, not running from them. And that mm. I find remarkable. Mm. Yeah, Thank beautiful. you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Cole, this is uh, on a much lighter and um, different direction altogether. Um, <laughs> but I'm curious, what part of, and this is in the US, what part of the country uh, are you from? region what, what where have you been shaped what lands and stuff where yeah. that have shaped you yeah um i'm from i uh, born and for the most part raised in pittsburgh pennsylvania pittsburgh okay um yeah. but i currently live in upstate new york so upstate. yeah upstate as in like are you getting close to like buffalo or rochester or anything like uh, that or not i'm like an hour and a half away from rochester i'm, I'm in ithaca new york so i'm right on a finger lake if you yeah. know where Cornell is, um, I live like 10 minutes from the <laughs> university. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because you're right. Yeah. So I should have known that now. Yeah. It's so, all right. So I was just in Rochester and it's so cold. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it's 
Someone you know, asked me if I could, you know, because there was some job position. Would I be interested? I'm like, no, I don't know. I don't think I could do that. I'm not sure no. if I'm built for that. But, um, but, but, yeah. And it's like the winter just extends longer. But oh, I'm yeah. from. So you said from Pittsburgh. I'm originally from Philly, but I live in Harrisburg now. Kind of bounce back and forth between Philly okay. and uh, Harrisburg. So. Okay. I lived in Philly for three years. Oh, very cool. Yeah. What, what parts are West Philly? West Philly. That's what's up. Forty yeah, yeah. Second Spring Garden. Very cool. I've lived uh, Norristown for fifteen years, and then like West Oak Lane, East Germantown for okay. eight years. Um, and all my dad's family and a lot of my mom's side as well as uh, in or around Philly. So yeah, that's cool. Mm. Very good. Cole, we deeply appreciate your time. And in terms of the like official recording part, um, uh, we'll draw this to a close, but we want to say you're welcome back anytime. Um, we were so excited to have you on because I feel um, uh, Inverse finds a home in the work that you do and the way that you do it. Um, and uh, some of the things that we're able to hold together your work and witness um, strengthen that. So we're, we're deeply thankful for you. And uh, I pray for you every time uh, I see what you're sharing, um, mm -hmm. because I can't imagine the different things that come your way from different directions and what it is to um, carry them in your psyche and deal with them cycli in, in your psyche. So um, please know that, that we pray for you and give thanks for you. And uh, you. please keep doing what you do with the integrity and, um, uh, and the um, intentionality that you do. It's really beautiful work. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you again for welcoming me, trusting me in your space, this very sacred space you're forming. So, well, We're excited um, for you to meet some of these um, precious people who, who journey with us, some of them many times a, a week across, whether it's our subversive seminary space or our decolonizing Sunday school space or our contemplative prayer space. So um, we'll do that now. But um, uh, before, before we transition, I was wondering if there was a, a prayer um, that you would like to, to read or share from your own work as a way of closing out this time. Um, I would, God of the ashes, remind us our story is more than pain. It is tempting to walk away from the past, the terrors and the tragedies never to return, but in doing, we can also lose grip of the beautiful, the good. Keep us from rushing into the ashes before lamenting and tending to our wounds. But when we're ready, help us to revisit what has not lasted. Guide our hands as we sift through the rubble in search of memories and parts of ourselves that we are prepared to reclaim. And let us rise protected and healing. Amen. 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 Thank you, Cole. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.